Most of us haven't had the experience of going out to an actual battle. Some of us have, I'm sure. Um, but most of us, we, we've never had to deal with that. We've never had to go into a situation where it's life or death. And if you were in that situation, I don't know what it's like, but I can only imagine the uncertainty, the fear, the fears for your own safety, what's going to happen to me, am I going to lose my life? And also, when it's very close to home, what happens if I lose this battle? What happens to my family? What happens to those that I love? Here in this story, or in this psalm, we have sort of a picture of the king preparing for battle. And we see that for God's people, they had a certainty when they went into battle which is that if they were following God, if it was his will, that God was going to win the victory for them, that God is stronger than whatever army they're up against. And in whatever challenges we have in our lives, we can find similar confidence and strength through a psalm like this, right? There's wrong ways to apply this, and I think right ways to apply this, and we'll see that more at the end. But this psalm is speaking of the king preparing for battle, And most of it is the congregation's words. So the the context seems to be the congregation of Israel gathered in the temple area, praying to God together for the success of the king as he goes to battle. And then there's an interjection in verse 6, a declaration from some figure. It might be the king himself, some say, or a priest or a prophet, um, speaking the words of victory over this battle they're about to face. So Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 clearly go together. So Psalm 20 is the words of petition before the battle, and then Psalm 21 is the answer after the battle. It's praising God for the victory that he has won. And this passage uh, reminds us of a few stories in, in Scripture. One of them is the story of King Asa in, in 2 Chronicles 14. And in this story, King Asa is a really interesting character who you know is faithful to God and then abandons God. But in this story in 2 Chronicles 14, the Egyptians come against him with an army that outnumbers his army two to one. And they have these chariots and they have this massive army assembled. And so the king invokes God's blessing and his salvation as they go into war. This is what it says in 2 Chronicles 14, 11. And Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So he's, he's praying to God, asking that God would win the victory for his own name's sake and for the blessing of his people. And so we have something similar happening here. A prayer is being given as the king and his army go into battle, and there's a recognition that only God can bring salvation. So let's look at this. The first section is verses 1 through 5. Here we see the petition of the people, the petition of the people. And in each verse, they ask God for something different. The first thing they ask for is God's protection as they go into battle. Look at verse 1. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the the God of Jacob protect you. So the day of trouble, they're asking for help in the day of trouble. This is probably speaking about the battle that's coming. This is the day of trouble. There's a a fight that's coming and there's a risk. And so this, now they're they're talking in the singular here. So they're saying, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. That you is a singular you. Um, In English, we don't really have a plural version of you. In the South, it'd be y'all, right? But I'm from California. We don't don't talk that way. Um, But... In Hebrew, there are 
plural forms of that second second uh, person pronoun, and they're singular. Here it's singular, so speaking about one person, and we'd say that's the, the king. So they're praying that God would protect the king in this battle. And later, I think we're going to see that really the Messiah is in view. Um, there's sort of hints at that. And any of these Davidic Psalms, <clears throat> excuse me, any of these Davidic Psalms are going to have that messianic implication later on. And so when we speak of the king, we're seeing the ultimate fulfillment that will come through the Messiah, through Jesus Christ. What's interesting here in verse 1 is he, he prays to the God of Jacob. That's an interesting title for God. It's used a number of times in the Old Testament. <clears throat> but why does he speak of God in this way? Well, it's possibly an abbreviation of the longer phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's probably part of it, is it's a short shorthand for that. But it also, I think, reminds us of the story of Jacob, how Jacob, in his wandering and in his kind of homelessness and seeking for a place to call his home, he was constantly depending on God. He was constantly looking to God for help, and God was watching over him. And so we see in Jacob's story this reminder that God cares about the wanderer, um, the foreigner. He cares about those who are away from home and are in need, and God will protect and watch over those who are needy. And so in this time of need, the, the, the crowd, the congregation, is lifting up their prayers to the same God that was with Jacob in his need. So they ask God for protection first, and then in verse 2, they ask for God's strength. Look at verse 2. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. So they're probably, like I said, praying this at the tabernacle or the temple. Of course, the temple wasn't built in David's day, so probably the tabernacle originally. And so this mention of the, the sanctuary here is probably referring to that earthly sanctuary. And Zion, of course, is the place where the temple was placed. So the sanctuary and Zion point to them being at this location, asking God to move from his dwelling place into action. And when they leave the temple, they, they want God to still be with them, right? Now, this earthly temple, this earthly tabernacle is a dim reflection of God's heavenly tabernacle. And so it, by implication, it's asking God to come down from the heights to, to rescue his people, to come from his throne, from his place of dwelling, to come and to fight on behalf of his people. It's the same idea we saw in Psalm 18, where God is coming down on his chariot to rescue his people. Here they're invoking that same, um, same strength and protection. Then they ask for God's favor in verse 3. It says, May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. So as they're in this temple gathered together, they're offering sacrifices and, and praying that God will look on that with favor and give them what they need. Then they ask God for success. The favor of God always leads to success for his people. Verse 4, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. They're asking God to give the king whatever he longs for. In this instance, it's obviously victory on the battlefield. But this is sort of a comprehensive prayer, right? Fulfill all of his plans. Give him all of his heart's desire. When I read this, I thought of um, an illustration from the, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is one of the books in the, the Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. And I thought of the island, that, that this basically this journey of the ship, right? With these kids from a different world, they go to Narnia and they're on this ship. And one of the islands they visit while they're on the ship is an island where someone says, it makes all of your dreams come true. And everyone starts to 
get really excited, right? Oh man, I'll, I'll have my own ship or I'll have this wealth or whatever. And the guy says, no, not, it makes all of your dreams come true. And they, they realize he's speaking about the, their nightmares, right? They're, the evil in their heart, the darkness in their heart, all these bad things. And so I thought of that with this. It, if your heart's desire is wicked, it's not good for God to give you everything that you want. And so I think the implication here is that this figure, the king, wants what is good. His will is in line with God's will. And, and so he's asking that God would fulfill it. And so while this is true very often of David, I think also this points us to the Messiah, who would be the one whose will is totally in line with God's will because he is perfect and he is holy. So they're asking God for success for the king, and then they ask God for victory as well. Verse 5, may we shout for joy over your salvation, and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Salvation here, I love that. We're shouting for joy over your salvation. The word for salvation is closely related to the name Jesus. That's when we see there's a lot of themes of salvation in this chapter and in chapter 21. But that that word is typically what's translated as salvation in English is related to the name for Jesus. And so we understand that salvation is really going to come ultimately through him. He's the one who brings the Lord's salvation. Now, this talk of setting up our banners, this is interesting. This is a unique phrase in the Bible. It's actually never used in the Bible. It's never actually used outside in different literature of that time. So it's it's kind of hard to translate, but the the word comes from the same root as banner. So they kind of read that meaning into it. So it seems to be a, a display of victory because God has given them the victory in the battle. So that seems to be the implication here. Now we have so we have the words in verse one through five, the words of the congregation, uh, the petition of the people, and then in verse six we have the declaration of the priest. So a single voice breaks through in verse six. Um, there's no we here in this passage. There's no plural petition happening from the congregation. It's a lone voice, right? It starts off by saying, now I. So who is this lone voice? I believe this is a priest that is speaking for the king. And it's hard to say for sure. Again, some say it's the king himself. Some say it's a prophet or some other figure. But the reason why I say it's a priest is because this passage is reminiscent of 2 Chronicles 20. And in that story, in um, 2 Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah, and he's about to go into a battle. He's about to go against a massive army, and he realizes that he's in need, so he prays to God. And it's a beautiful prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. You should read it if you have the time. And then what I want to focus on, though, is there's a response from um, the Levite Jehaziel. Jehaziel prays uh, this prayer, or he actually he kind of gives this prophecy. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and he gives this prophecy. And this is just part of it in 2 Chronicles 20, 17. It says, he says, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid, and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. So the king is praying, he's praying on behalf of the people, and then this Levite, this priestly figure, responds by saying the victory of God is, is sure. And that's sort of what's happening here. It kind of seems like the same thing. Look at, look at uh, Psalm 20, verse 6. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. 
So here it's this singular voice speaking. The priest says, I know. The idea is like a settled confidence, assurance. There's no doubt. He knows. He's assured that Yahweh saves, that the Lord will save, that he will save his anointed. That word, highlight that word again. It's one of those key words, that word Mashiach, which means Messiah. So the anointed will be saved. So we see that this is about you know, David himself, but it also points to a greater fulfillment throughout Scripture. There's going to be one who brings this salvation in the fullest sense. But he knows that God will save. He knows God's character, who he is, and so he trusts in God's salvation. Yes, he's saying your hearts are filled with anxiety because of the battle ahead. Yes, you don't have any sort of visual assurance that God's going to answer. There's room for doubt, but for God, this isn't unsure. There's no doubt for God. He knows the end, and he will accomplish it. He remains the same, and he is strong, and his victory is sure. His salvation will come. And so we again see this, this phrase, the saving might of his right hand. That mention of right hand has been quite a few psalms in the last few that have mentioned his, God's right hand as this place of power, as this place where there's joy and fulfillment. And so here that power that comes from God's right hand is given in its saving might to the king. So we have this statement, this declaration of the priest of confidence, and then the last few verses, verses 7 to 9, we see the victory of the Lord, the victory of the Lord. Verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. There's actually only one verb in this sentence. There's no, so the, the, the first trust there is not actually present in the original language. It basically says, some in chariots and, and in horses, but we, in the name of the Lord our God, will trust. Or really that word is the word remember. Remember or calling something to mind um, or acknowledging something is kind of the idea. So the, the idea of trust is definitely implied in that. So it's a good translation. But the idea here is bring to mind who God is and therefore respond in trust. So some put their trust in chariots and horses. The idea there is, um, it's kind of foreign for us, but back then this was their their power, their technology, right? If you wanted the most advanced weapons of warfare, you would have horses and you would have chariots because these chariots would be able to, at when they're going at full speed, to break apart the line of the, the enemy army. So as they would come in, they would scatter the army and therefore they would be vulnerable and they'd be open to attack. And so to have chariots on your side meant that you were, in some cases, almost invulnerable. You could defeat other armies very easily because of this technology. It'd be like us having tanks or you know, F-16s or something like that today, this superior weaponry. And often Israel would face armies that had chariots and they'd be terrified of them. Think about Exodus chapter 14 where Pharaoh's army is coming with his chariots upon the people of Israel as they're stuck with the Red Sea at their backs. That was a time that was scary. Or Judges 4 was a similar kind of idea there. But God always saves his people when they're outnumbered and outclassed. So don't trust in chariots. Don't trust in horses. Don't trust in the things of this world that demonstrate power, sophistication, technology, might. Because those things don't actually save. It, what does save is the name of the Lord our God. That's what saves. And when God's on our side, no human power can stand a chance. 
And so we always look to him and remember where our strength comes from. It's not the stuff of this world. It's from him. Verse 8 says, They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. So there's a contrast here between the wicked and the righteous. The enemies of, of David, they're doomed to destruction. Their plans are doomed. They don't stand a chance, but the righteous can stand firm in the midst of the battle and trust that God's going to deliver. And then it ends, verse 9, it says, Oh Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. It ends with a line that echoes the first verse in this passage. Um, may, he, may he answer us is basically what was prayed in verses 1 to 4. And then save the king is what was prayed for in verses 5 through 8. So here he sums up the prayer and he gives this to God, trusting that God is going to answer, God is going to save. So what should we take away from a passage like this? What does this mean for us? Well, I think one obvious thing is that we shouldn't fight battles like an atheist. Very often when we face some challenge in our lives, we kind of start to become practical atheists. We forget that God is real, he's present, he cares about our circumstances, and that he's the only one who can give victory. So we forget to bring our needs to God. So don't don't first operate on your own strength. First look to God. Ask for his strength. Ask for his victory. God's the one who gives victory, so constantly be turning to him in prayer. Victory is guaranteed to us as God's people in an ultimate sense is what I mean. So when we apply this passage, we should know that there are many circumstances where uh, many battles, you could say, in our life where God won't give us immediate victory. We won't get that thing that we want. We won't have immediate fulfillment in our lives. But the final war will be won. The battles that matter the most in God's plan will be won. That God will never allow us to experience a defeat if we're his people without some ultimate victory. And so we should take confidence that, yes, not everything is going to go how we want. We don't believe in some sort of health and wealth gospel where we can just claim any victory for ourselves and God's going to give it to us. Our heart's desires aren't always pure. So we wouldn't want that anyway. We want God's will to be done. But we know there will be a victory on the last day. The enemies of God will be defeated and the people of God will be vindicated and brought into joy forever. And when you do experience some victory now, because there's lots of victories that God gives us now, lots of blessing he gives us now, but, but use that to remember that there's a final victory that's coming, that we're waiting one day on what God's going to reveal at the end when he'll bring us everything that we need. That's the first thing. Don't fight your battles like an atheist. The second thing to remember is that the confidence that people have in earthly things will quickly crumble. It's amazing how many times this world has let us down and let other people down, and yet how often we return and place our faith in the things of this world. They fall apart. They crumble. They can't endure, and they can't save, and yet so often we go back to them. So if you're trusting in earthly methods right now, if you're looking for pleasure in sin, or if you're turning away from God to things that are temporary and empty, come back to God. He's the one who gives the victory. He's the one who brings blessing. There's no happiness. There's no victory outside of him. The next thing we see, I think, in this is, and I've mentioned it a couple times, that what's true of Davidic kings is even truer of the Messiah. So God gave his Davidic kings much victory. He watched over them. He guarded them. But what's said here, I think, ultimately points us to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. Right? He's the one who's going to have the victory. He's the one who's going to bring salvation. He's the one who's going to be at the right hand of God. 
and who's going to intercede for us as well. And so we look to him for the final victory. The next thing I think we see here is that we have an offering that God will always accept. Just as Jesus is the true Davidic king, he's also the true sacrifice. So when in this passage, the psalmist is asking for God to look with favor on his offering, we know that God will always look with favor on the offering of his son, Jesus. In fact, he can't not look with favor on the offering of Jesus. And so because of that, he loves us and he blesses us. That is our guarantee. That's our surety, to use the old phrase, um, that we can come before God and we have a, a welcome at his throne. The last thing I would say is I just love the picture here of you know people praying for and supporting the king as he goes into battle. And if that's, you know, that, that, that's true of a king who is mighty and of a king who's been given this covenant by God, it's also true of us. We need people that are praying for us, lifting us up. I was talking to one of the young guys in our church who just gave a sermon, and he was talking about how, how easy and joyful that was because he knew the people in our church were praying for him and supporting him. And I love that. I, I feel the same way. Our church is incredibly supportive, incredibly uh, prayer-filled, and so to have people that are lifting up your needs to God empowers you in such a great way. And so seek that out. When we, when we started our church, I gathered a team of 100 people that were praying for us every single month. And I would send out these reminders and get emails back from them. When missionaries go out, they develop prayer teams. In our church, we should see ourselves as that kind of a prayer team, that we're praying for each other. We're lifting up these needs because we know that God loves to answer and loves to give victory. So just a great passage. It's going to be followed up in a great way by Psalm 21, which we'll look at next week.